We're going to read in a moment from Luke chapter 1, just three short verses. Uh, Luke 1, verses 23 through 25. Before we do that, let me just recognize an old friend. Uh, I saw George Crosby walk in here. Where are George? Would you stand for a minute? George, where are you hiding? There he is. George is one of the guys from the very earliest years of North River. Hadn't been here in years, but it's just great to see your face. Thank you for the way that you helped us get started. Uh, uh, I just want to add a, a thought to what Christy said a moment ago about these cards. Uh, part of what we're doing on Christmas Eve this year is we're experimenting a little bit. We noticed the patterns since COVID started of when people come to these three Christmas Eve services we've had. And the trends have moved earlier and earlier so that the l- most lightest attended was our 5 o'clock service on Christmas Eve. So, with a lot of creativity, our team decided to experiment. We've been uh, experimenting, experimenting for the last three years with this hybrid model. And we thought, what if we try to make an advancement with the online portion of this? And we take some of the energy that went into that third service and we set our team loose to create a slightly different service that is tailored only for online. So that's the reason for the switch. And it's experimenting a little bit because we think that there's an audience of people who are out there where if we were to go after them particularly, that we have something that can reach them through the use of all the technical lessons that we've been learning the last three years. So we're asking you to embrace uh, the slight change with the knowledge that this is pushing the mission forward and trying to think how do we reach people who will not cross the threshold and enter the door yet, but there's a message we have for them on Christmas Eve. So there, there are two ways you can invite. One is for people to come to our services. We'd like to fill the house on that uh, 7 o'clock service the night before Christmas Eve and then at 3 o'clock on Christmas Eve itself. And then think forward about how we can invite people who may check us out for the first time online. We've got something special for them. Here's our text for this morning. Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 23. We're talking about Zechariah, who we focused on last Sunday. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. If we were to go a little bit earlier, there's a couple of verses I just want to add to this, uh, looking at verses 5, 6, and 7 of the same chapter. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive And they were both very old. Let's pray. God, give us insight into your scriptures, into the surprises of Christmas that are there for us to find, to puzzle over, to meditate on. Show us how these surprises apply to the way that we think about the way that you work in the world today based on the way that you've worked in the world in the past. Lord, we ask that you would continue to guide us 
as we think through how to live out our own lives, how to grow in our faith, how to embrace faith for the first time, how to, uh, how to teach our children, but also help us as we try to think through our mission in the world individually and collectively as a church. Help us as we try to think through the use of the gifts and talents and abilities that you've given us and how they merge with the goals that we have as a church and the the mission that we've embraced here on the South Shore. Help us as we think through how we relate to our, our neighbors and our friends and our family members and our coworkers, some of whom share the same faith that we have, some of whom are in process of putting together the pieces of the puzzle of faith so that they can come to a, a place of, of strength and greater foundation. Yet some of those do not understand how all this makes sense. They do not understand how much freedom you give to the soul that leans on you and finds its rest in you. And I pray that over the next couple of weeks as we approach Christmas, that you'll give us words to say, that you'll give us the ability to show the love of Jesus to real people who we care about and when questions are asked, to be able to answer as winsomely as we know how in order to share what we've been learning. Lord, I ask that you would meet our needs. You know, the struggles that people have as winter approaches, as the cold comes in and finances are tight, and we ask that you would continue to supply every need that we have. They would make us more diligent in the way that we use the resources that you give us, and that you will also bless us because we want to follow you and serve you. Guide us in this time today, in Jesus' name, amen. On December 20th, 1946, there was a new movie that opened up in a limited number of theaters and seemingly was set to disappear from view, even though it garnered five Oscar nominations. Didn't win any, but I got five Oscar nominations. This particular movie starred Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed, so the film had already a kind of an all-star cast, but it wasn't well-received. Now, you probably know what I'm talking about, but how many of you have watched It's a Wonderful Life? How many of you have watched It's a Wonderful Life multiple times? How many of you watch It's a Wonderful Life every year? I mean, I, I do. But here's the backstory of what happened along the way from this failed movie, at least what was considered to be a failed movie. The movie was based on a self-published book written in 1943 by Philip Van Doren Stern, loosely modeled after Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. The movie kicked around for a few years, was passed over by a number of, of production companies, and finally RKO Pictures bought it and sold the rights for $10,000 to Frank Capra to make this movie. However, when it first came out, the movie lost money, and the critics judged it harshly because it was seen as having an unrealistically optimistic ending. The very thing that you and I love, why we, re- why we watch it year after year, was panned by the critics. Because RKO Pictures lost a half a million dollars on it, It's a Wonderful Life, the movie that claimed you're never a failure if you have friends, was itself considered to be a box office failure. Then a couple things happened. The first was that the film suddenly turned into a much-loved classic 
By the time of the film's 30th anniversary in December 19, uh, 1976, it became such a, a classic that Seneca Falls, New York began an annual It's a Wonderful Life festival every December, even though the film was, was uh, put together in California, had nothing to do with Seneca Falls, but they thought it most likely looked like their town, and so they adopted it. That allowed something else to happen, where somebody forgot to renew the film's rights somewhere around 1980, allowing It's a Wonderful Life to slip into the public domain. It was an expense of somewhere around $100 that didn't get paid, and so the movie went into public acclaim, which meant, or public domain, which meant that every television station could air the film as many times as they wanted for free which is why you and I see it every year, because the TV stations know that they can use that time, they don't have to pay for any rights, and they make money because people like it, but they don't have to pay for filler uh, costs the way that they would with any other production. Director Frank Capra marveled over the new life that the movie found in the 70s and 80s. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal, he remarked that the film has, quote, a life of its own, and added, I didn't even think of it as a Christmas story when I made it, unquote. Now, here's the reason for telling you this story. It's a Wonderful Life is one of the great Christmas surprises of our lifetime. A film that originally lost money and won no major awards has become one of the most watched and most loved films of all time. In fact, somebody quipped that this film that was designed to tell people that you're never a failure if you only have friends, uh, the, the, now the message of the movie is, uh, a film is never a failure if it still has an audience or can find an audience. Well, here we are today. We're in part two of our Christmas Advent series, which we're calling Christmas Promises. And we're probing and celebrating some of the great promises that come to us through the classic gospel accounts of the arrival of Jesus. Our topic today is From Disgrace to Favor. We're going to focus on the response of Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah the priest and the cousin of Jesus' mother Mary. When she heard the promise that God had made to her husband, Zechariah, and the role that she would play in the original Christmas event, her response led to experiencing the favor of God. Here's the question that was rising up in my mind as I was working through this passage this week. What hope does Christmas have for people trapped in or marked by disgrace in life? Here's the big idea that I want to give you right up, up front. Christmas includes the good news that the Lord removes our disgrace and replaces it with his favor. What an awesome thought. The, our Lord removes disgrace and replaces it with favor when we put our trust in the Jesus of Christmas. So we're going to look at, uh, from disgrace to favor, three Christmas surprises that are embedded in the story. Here's the first one. The news of Christmas surprises our world of disgrace. In verse 25, Elizabeth says, The Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. A few years ago, Pope Francis wished his audience a Chris, at Christmas a, a, a rich, he said, Christmas is, uh, I, I wish you a Christmas rich in surprises of Jesus. 
I think he was onto something here that Christmas is rich in the surprises of Jesus. As we've already seen in this series, Christmas is full of surprises. The first surprise was when the angel of the Lord met with Zechariah in the temple as he was serving in the Holy of Holies. He shocked him with the news that God himself was breaking the silence that had been going on for some 400 years between the last prophetic utterance that God had given about the future and that point. And then he told Zechariah that he and Elizabeth would have a son in their old age and he would play a critical role in the coming of the Messiah. We saw that with the angel's announcement, Christmas hope began to break out. The Lord was lifting the veil and revealing what he is up to and with these words and instructions comes hope. Hope that God is on the move. Hope that the great silence is over. Hope that God remembers the suffering of his people. And personal hope for Zechariah and Elizabeth that God had heard their prayer and they would have a son. However, the words of Elizabeth let us, let us in on the context of this promise as well. The context, according to Elizabeth, was an atmosphere of disgrace. She says, the Lord has taken away my disgrace from among the people. Now, you're probably listening to that and thinking, disgrace is not one of the word concepts that shows up regularly for us in the Christmas season. Disgrace is not in the top ten words that dominate our Christmas cards that you and I send out. I dare say that it usually doesn't show up at all on our Christmas radar. And yet, as I read the Christmas accounts again a few months ago, these words from Elizabeth just sort of jumped off the page for me. So here's the first observation. The news of Christmas surprises our world of disgrace. That leads to the second thought. The Lord of Christmas removes our disgrace. This is part of the Christmas message that God is at work in removing disgrace when it falls upon people. Again, she says, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people, verse 25. Notice the Lord's activity here. First, he sends an angel to announce the beginning of the year of Advent, so to speak. They don't just have a, a month of Advent, but there's a, there's a whole year of events that are beginning to unfold with the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus as well. Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a child. This child would become John the Baptist. And Elizabeth would be six months pregnant before Mary, her cousin, also comes to her and acknowledges that she is with child. Mary will bear Jesus the Christ. God was answering her long hoped for prayer. Not when she wanted it, not in the years and even decades when she was offering that prayer, but much, much later than she ever realized that would come to pass. Now, this information comes to us through the Gospel of Luke. You think about it. Luke was a doctor and traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. So, Luke automatically comes onto the scene and has his ministry in the years after Jesus has ascended back to the heavens, well after the cross and the resurrection. He most likely wrote during Paul's imprisonment years, somewhere around A.D. 60 or 82, give or take, uh, 60 or 62, uh, Luke tells us in the opening verses of his gospel that he essentially interviewed everybody that he possibly could in order to set the story down right. And these birth announcements only could have come from Mary. This makes Mary not only the person that God used to bring his son into the world, it also makes Mary the informational source of several of the Christmas accounts. Mary had insights into these themes that most men would not have noticed. 
One of those themes had to do with this lifting of disgrace. Now, the word disgrace appears 85 times in the Bible. By my count, disgrace seems to fit into three different scenarios when you look at all of those references. First, there was moral disgrace. That's the kind of disgrace that falls on someone for specific moral sins and failures. And then there is a social disgrace that is applied by others when they don't match what is expected in society. And sometimes there was a national disgrace. That's the kind that fell on Israel when the Lord allowed the nation to be conquered and the people to go off into exile. Elizabeth was experiencing the second kind of disgrace, a social disgrace, which was a form of cultural shaming. Now, does that bring that into our world today and the way that our world sometimes operates and applies its own version of cultural shaming? We know this was not moral disgrace because Luke tells us that they were blameless in the way that she and Zechariah had gone about living out their faith. That doesn't mean they were perfect, but they excelled in keeping the commands of God. And so God never looked down on Elizabeth with this sense of disgrace. Social disgrace is when the people of a culture look down on you with their own rejection. And so Elizabeth was looked down on by a culture that assumed that God's disfavor had fallen on any woman who was not able to conceive or bear children. This cultural bias is as old as the conflict between Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob. When Rachel was pregnant with Joseph, she said, God has taken away my disgrace. And it seems that Elizabeth is directly quoting these biblical words that come from that earlier account in Genesis. There's a ministry called Mockingbird that discusses this kind of disgrace. One of the things that that was written in an article called Disgrace and the Cross is that disgrace is the opposite of grace. Disgrace destroys, causes pain, deforms and wounds. It alienates and isolates. Disgrace makes you feel worthless, rejected, unwanted, and repulsive, like a persona non grata or a person without grace. Disgrace silences and shuns. That definition helps us understand a little bit about how Elizabeth felt about this kind of uh, social shaming that was happening in her life. Now, don't pass over this observation about disgrace too quickly. The feeling of disgrace is powerfully disabling when it takes hold in your life. It's the kind of feeling that attaches to a former prisoner years after being released. Choi, the author of that article I was quoting a moment ago, writes that few experiences can cause the feelings of disgrace more than being a victim of sexual assault. This is a kind of one-way violence that crushes the soul. It's a kind of shame that others can add to with belittling words, mockery, humiliation, or the absence of justice. And with just a phrase from Elizabeth, Luke lets us know that this was the context of the beginning of the Christmas gospel, and that there is hope for people who have experienced shame in our culture. The Elizabeth narrative tells us that the lifting of disgrace is an essential element of the Christmas story. Okay, why does this matter? Well, for a number of reasons. It shows us that Christmas is not just for the perpetually cheerful among us. I had a few of you last Sunday who said, I'm glad you started this Advent series the way that you did because I'm just not ready for Christmas. I'm not in the mood. And and you prayed for us that maybe we'd allow the 
the songs and the hymns and the carols and the focus that we're going to have the next few weeks to pull people gradually into this desire to want to worship and celebrate again at this Christmas season. It shows us that Christmas deliberately includes those who experience disgrace and shame that they are not forgotten by God. And it shows us that the Lord of Christmas, our God, is able to lift, remove, and replace disgrace when our culture allows it to fall on you. Again, here's our big idea for today. Christmas includes the good news that the Lord removes our disgrace and he replaces it with his favor. That leads to the third observation from this text. Our reception of Christmas replaces disgrace with favor. Our reception is so important. In other words, how we receive the news about Jesus and how we respond to Jesus. So let me go back to this whole paragraph of Scripture that we're focusing on this morning. When his time of service was completed, he, Zechariah, returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months she remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and has taken away my disgrace from among the people. There are some very fine details in this account that are easy for us to miss. Did you notice that King Herod was mentioned in Luke uh, chapter 1 verse 5 in the first phrase of the account of the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth? Okay, that deliberately locates the story in the time when Herod reigned over Judea. And that means that this is not a mythical made-up story. Rather, it's rooted in real history and time. Herod is also listed, though, so that we will contrast his lack of reception in response to Jesus with Elizabeth's reception of the news of the gospel. When Herod heard the Christmas gospel from the Magi, he tried to kill Jesus. He tried to wipe every little boy who was two years old or under off the face of the map if they lived in and around Bethlehem. And we also see how Zechariah showed how not to respond to the news of the gospel. Zechariah responded with failure to believe the angel. So the angel says, Zechariah, you're not going to be able to talk until this child is born. Nine months of silence, which is awful for a priest or a pastor. It's just an amazing thought. Verse 23 is really interesting to me. It says that when Zechariah finished serving, he went home. You know what that means? I think there's some built-up marital humor in this part of the Elizabeth account. Zechariah had been serving in Jerusalem, was, wasn't his home. It was special duty that he had at the temple, which meant that Elizabeth was back at home. He has also been told, and we've learned through Luke, that an angel appeared, and even though they were old and beyond childbearing years, they were going to have a son. So without being able to talk, Zechariah had to go home, communicate this miraculous message from the angel of the Lord to his wife. Elizabeth had to go along with the plan. And he had to convince her in her old age, to start trying for a baby. Here's where the humor comes in, I think. Let's just say that there may have been some challenges with all of that. 
Would Zechariah be ready and able to take on this challenge? He's an old man. I don't have to get graphic, but you know what I'm talking about. Would Elizabeth agree to a season of, we'll just call it intentional baby making in her old age? Some of you know what those years are like when you're trying and trying and trying and trying. What if she had given up on that part of her life for good by then? What if she thought this was just another ploy from old Zechariah to spend more time in bed with Elizabeth? Would she believe? And Elizabeth, as the song said that Dave and Kelly just sang a moment ago, saw the late answer as God's mercy in disguise. There's a phenomenal act of faith and trust here that we see from Elizabeth. So all of this tension builds toward Elizabeth's response, and she says three things. The Lord has done this for me. Second, He has shown me favor. And third, He has taken away my disgrace. This means that she received the promise of Christmas with an open heart, even though her heart had been broken over and over again in all the years that she prayed to have a child. And she'd given up on this thought, yet she still believes the angel's word when it comes to her through Zechariah. She was most likely extremely careful during these first five months of pregnancy. It's no wonder that she was in, ex in uh, exclusion for all of that time or seclusion. And Elizabeth in introduces us to another important concept. When you experience God's favor, isn't that what we all, what we all long for? Wanting God to shine his blessings on us, to shine his mercy on us. Wanting God to see us as people that he wants to spend time with and know and people that he wants to use and to employ in his mission to the world. The concept of God's favor shows up 127 times in the Old Testament and then 31 times in the New Testament. The earliest applications of God's favor in the New Testament have to do with Elizabeth and Mary. Elizabeth says, the Lord has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace. The angel greets Mary with these words, greetings, you who are highly favored. And then the angel tells the shepherds out in the field at night, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. See, these earliest applications of the concept of favor are surrounding the Christmas story of the arrival of Jesus and John the Baptist. And they responded with openness of heart and faith. Here's what I want to say to all of you. Don't leave Christmas this year without receiving Jesus with an open heart. I'll give you a chance to do that in a few minutes if you don't understand what that's all about or you haven't done that before. But this is the initial mistake that King Herod made. Think of this. Herod is mentioned every year at Christmas. He's in the Christmas narratives, but he's always the negative example. He had the facts, but he processed them all in the wrong way. He perceived Jesus as a threat to holding on to his own power, 
And in the end, by trying to hold on to that power, he lost everything. Elizabeth is the contrast to Herod. She embraced the news of God's plan with an open heart, even though her mind probably couldn't conceive, how is all of this going to happen? We're way beyond those years. And she embraced God's plan to remove her social disgrace that others had applied to her. And she trusted his plan. God's grace and favor are applied to our lives at the moment when we acknowledge that we've sinned and that we can't save ourselves and we put our faith that God has sent his son into the world to save us from our sins and disgrace through the life and love and cross of Jesus. Jesus came for the purpose of making us right with God and and that took someone who could pay the penalty for our sins. God sent Jesus And Jesus paid for your sins because he loves you and wants you to know the freedom that only he can give. So there's no pressure from us. But for those who want to, who are searching for the way that that you find yourself in the path of God's favor, I want you to know that you can start a new relationship with God through Jesus by transferring your faith and trust to Jesus It starts with a prayer, something like this. Right where you are, whether you're watching at home or you're here in the room, you could whisper this along with me. And if you do, and you mean it, this becomes the start of a whole new relationship with you and God through Jesus. Dear Lord, I humbly admit that I have sinned like everyone else. And I cannot perfect myself. I cannot save myself. I understand the Christmas gospel that tells me that Jesus came into the world as your son. He died in order to pay for my sins and offer me a new life where I can enjoy your favor. I long for your favor. Right now, I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus. He is your solution to my problem. Take my little bit of faith and let it grow. As best as I know how, I will follow Jesus from now on. If you pray a prayer like that and you begin to take the steps in following Jesus and every day make him a part of your life and whisper a few prayers to him and and look at some words in the gospel and your faith will grow and you will experience something at Christmas that you've never fully known before and that is you become part of the story when you too, like Elizabeth, have trusted in the Christmas gospel. But here's the good news in our world, which can heap shame on people so fast when it's so hard to get rid of. Christmas includes the good news that the Lord that we serve removes our disgrace and he replaces it with his favor when we trust Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will allow this to be a Christmas that is filled with favor, filled with the removal of disgrace. Thank you that Jesus was willing to bear all of our sins and become an open disgrace for us when he was hung on that cross outside the city in a place of shame. That he would take forever all the penalties of our sins, all the shame that others try to heap on us and nail it to that cross and leave it there. And Lord, we ask that you would allow us to operate as people who are not 
controlled by the shame of our culture or the disgrace of our culture, but are set free to really live with the freedom that we know that there is a God who showers his children with favor when we trust him and follow him and seek him. Lord, let all the wise men and women and students and children that we know seek Jesus this Christmas. It's in his name we pray.